You're listening to 100 PM, episode 43. You're listening to 100 PM, the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product people from startups to enterprise and everything in between to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product management. Today's guest is Brittany Canty, Senior Product Manager at Braintree. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm Susanna Bate, product coach, startup mentor, and host of today's show. Let's dive right in and say hello to Brittany Canty. Hi, I am Brittany Canty, Senior Product Manager at Braintree. This is a large office here. There's a lot of yeah. different companies going on. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty massive office, and about every six months we expand. <laughs> it, because Braintree, PayPal, Venmo, who yeah. else is in that constellation? Um, that's mostly it. We get you know pay, uh, PayPal folks every so often. Um, I think even Zoom folks tend to come here. We're kind of like the office of the PayPal family in Chicago, so... We happen to be in town, you know, you come by. And does the rest of the city of Chicago like you all? Or they're like, oh, those brain tree folks are taking up space again. There's no good <laughs> office space left because this company just keeps getting bigger. Well, I hope they like us. They probably have no idea who Braintree is because the first question I tell or first question people ask me rather when I tell them I work for Braintree, they're like, oh, what is that? Is that like an educational thing? And no. <laughs> what is Braintree? Well, now that you ask, uh, Braintree is a payment processor. So kind of like how people know PayPal very well as processing payments from uh, more of like a consumer to a business or consumer to consumer, like Venmo, Venmo process P2P or peer-to-peer rather. Braintree really focuses on the merchant side. So we power the payments behind some of the big brands like Uber and TaskRabbit and Lyft. Um, we make it easy for them and hopefully easy for the buyer as well. Did the company start in San Francisco or it started here in Chicago? It actually started here in Chicago. Oh, this yeah. is like a, this a is Chicago. Base. Yeah. Wow, Chicago success story. Yeah. Do you know the backstory on how it came to be? Um, they give that man, opportunity as part of the training manual at the beginning. Well, when I started about three years ago, it was more like, here's the whiteboard timeline and here's like when we spiked and here's all of this stuff. So um, I remember vaguely some things about it, but not all the details, unfortunately. Right. When when you did start referring back to that whiteboard moment, where was the company in its product life cycle? Um, it was pretty established for like the main product, um, essentially the the product is like our gateway of like what processes the payments um, and they kind of have some additional staples out there as well um, specific for different types of business cases so for a marketplace like a TaskRabbit we had something to do uh, for them and we had an international offering and things of that nature still very straightforward and in the last three years I've been here it's been all about like expanding and scaling and adding new features here and there like Apple Pay and Bitcoin and you know all of the fun stuff as the kind of market evolves over time so I am the co-founder of a company called the development factory and we're a product consultancy so we do end-to-end solutions 
we work with startups that you know have the next great idea and want to bring a product to market. We work with existing products. So we're a good example of the type of organization that would leverage Braintree API to put into products. This is a good opportunity to pitch me <laughs> on, uh, on why would Braintree be the right payment processing? Because I guess there are other options available. Yeah. So why Braintree? Uh, there's probably two main things when I talk about you know why Braintree is best out there. Because <laughs> it is. <laughs> one is that you know we try and make things as easy as possible. So like one integration, and then as we evolve over time and as you scale, you kind of get all of the new things, and it's very easy to like switch them on. I almost want to say it's like a toggle in the control panel. Like oh, you want to accept Amex? Easy. Oh, you want to expand to Europe and you need to be able to process there? Oh, flip that switch. It's really simple. Um, we really try and continue to make that as make that a key part of our business mm -hmm. as we uh, grow. And then second is our customer service. So we have actual people here in our office that can show them to you. <laughs> that answer emails, that answers phones, that really um, answers tweets, all of that to make sure that we have that white glove customer service that I think some of our other competitors don't focus as much on, but it's really one of our core competencies that in the hallway, even as we'll walk past it, you'll see like one of our things is care a lot. That's one of our mantras. So um, I think we, we really try and embody that. Okay. I, I'm bought in, <laughs> but we'll see how the rest of this okay. conversation goes. Right. No, I'm kidding. So you, you're talking about customer service. Let's talk about the relationship between the product team and customer service because when you're in a larger organization and departments start to formalize, right? When we move past the early growth, when we move past the, the flat organizational construct, the product managers rely more and more on intelligence from the customer service team. How often, I mean, are you buying them chocolates and flowers and being like, give me your worst case scenarios? What are people saying on the line? How do you, how do you collect information from that, that group? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think there's like the initial of like when we first onboarded PM, we make sure that they shadow the team, both on the phones and via email. So we really get a sense of like what this team does, what types of problems they solve and what types of merchants they deal with, the questions that come through. Um, and then on an ongoing basis, we, tr we really try and get a good sense of data um, via the Salesforce tickets or Zendisk tickets or whatever tool we're using nowadays um, to make sure that whoever owns that product really understands the pain points that customers are feeling. Um, and then we, with in addition with accounts, really try and talk to our customers on a regular basis. It's really great to talk to existing customers to find out like what's wrong with your products, um, but also to talk to new customers and really hear the new variations of the business cases that you think you already know and you have down packed, but may Maybe a change. Maybe you haven't thought about it in this way before. Um, so it's always really great to get some firsthand thoughts um, to validate any of those assumptions or disvalidate, invalidate, invalidate. invalidate. <laughs> what uh, I'm interested to to understand a little bit about the rhythm because I think you know some people have this question of like what is. Describe a day in the life of product management. And then, of course, there's no such thing as a day in the life. Right. Everything is different. But given that it's a larger, I mean, how many people, first of all, at Braintree employees, approximately? 
Uh, I think we're, I think we passed the 500 stage total across all our offices. Right. So fairly large company and you're working constantly on improving existing products, working constantly on finding new ways to deliver that ease of use Mm -hmm. promise, that key differentiator. How often are you and the product team dialing into those customer service calls, reviewing those tickets? Like what I'm trying to get a feel for is how much time is spent thinking about the customer ongoing or does that come in waves? If you can speak a little bit about that. Yeah, I would say it probably comes more in waves. I think it's funny. I was going to say because we're still a smaller product team, but we're, we're pretty big now, but um, probably not as big as we need to be it's still managing all of those priorities, right? And there's always like seven priorities that should be number one that you have to rotate um, that are in the top three at any given point in time. I think it's more of in the way things. I think ideally we'd want to do it on a more structured basis, whether it's monthly or, you know, every two to three weeks. But the way it is now is, well, we tend to have like monthly newsletters and checkpoints with all our stakeholders mm-hmm. to really make sure that nothing's changed <laughs> and to gather any additional requirements or inputs if anything has happened in that time frame. So tell us a little bit about how the team is structured. Is it based on different products or it's just everybody working on Braintree as a whole? Yeah, so we do have uh, product managers leading specific products and then we may have more than one we may have more than one product manager on a more complex product okay um i was trying to think of a good example but nothing came to mind but so we have some that are some products that are customer facing we have some products that are more internal facing like salesforce Mm -hmm. or um, our disputes team Um, and then we have more things that are like initiative based meaning that we'll spin up a team for that thing if we're adding a new payment method Mm -hmm. Um, and then we would once that's there and ready and working as expected then we would disband the team and move on to the next new initiative like a task force basically exactly cool and to talk about the scenarios where more than one product manager might be involved is that typically a construct of a senior person that's augmented by a junior or two people of sort of matched skill set just simply dividing up the work? Uh, I think it depends on the product mm-hmm. and who we have available at the time, right? Okay. Right now we're hiring a lot of senior PMs because we need we need to kind of fill some spaces in our hierarchy. When I started, we had a very flat hierarchy. It was essentially you were a product manager. And then there was a lead for each office. Now that we've grown, we have to now kind of have some additional levels so that we have some oversight onto like similar products to make sure that like we're making the right decision. So we're not overlapping effort and we're, make, we're, we're being smart about how we build as we continue to grow and scale. So sometimes it could be a very massive, uh, complex product that has a lead senior PM and maybe we maybe we have a product that is very complex, has a lead senior PM, kind of overall focused on the direction of that product, and then we have maybe a more mid-level PM or an associate kind of helping with the day-to-day stuff. Right now, for instance, I have an intern, a PM intern, um, and so she's helping me. I have a big, bigger, complex product, but in addition to working some working on her intern project she's also helping me with some of the smaller features do you all you have engineers here yes do you use this term role of product owner that that comes from kind of agile and scrum does that even 
come about here or everyone's just a product manager and we don't talk about product ownership? Uh, we don't we don't necessarily call out product ownership. It's usually the product manager is essentially the product owner. Right. We become the, you know, subject matter experts on that product. So in these scenarios then when there's two or maybe even three PMs, how does the matter of ownership kind of is it negotiation is it well we've got to work together to make the best decisions yeah um rock paper scissors <laughs> um i think with the massive the very big ones that are, are then kind of broken up into like sub projects mm -hmm. and you may have a owner for or a product manager that like really owns that small piece of it and then you'll have kind of i'm trying to think of a good example but and then you have a a senior PM that kind of leads the overarching thing. So when we're thinking about who, if someone were to call like an accounts person, like who owns X, um, they would likely go to the senior PM. And then if it was something specific to one of the lower defined products, then they would probably redirect them to that PM. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So do these these product leads that, that you're describing, you, you talk about them kind of bringing the vision. Um, I'm moving my way toward road mapping. So I'm curious, are they the people in the organization that are coming and saying, okay, here's our themes for the next six months or 12 months or 18 months. Now let's start to figure out how we can break those apart into initiatives, which will then break down into, you know, specific features or improvements. To what extent uh, is somebody like yourself or the rest of the product team playing a part in that process? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, We've been evolving that process <laughs> okay. the entire time that I've been at Braintree. I think before it used to be much more top-down, mm -hmm. where the business, in business and quotes, right, yeah. would decide what the priorities were for the company, and we would then prioritize below um, figuring out how we would get there a little bit. Um, and a lot of those inputs coming from all of the, the typical things that you would expect, the market, sales, accounts, all of those things. I think we're in a transitional state right now. We're in a transitional state where we're trying not to be so specific on our roadmap about the product. Are we going to add this feature at this time? But really trying to make sure that we talk about the experience that we want our merchants to have and what do we want to enable. Like I said, I think we're in this transitional place where we're going to ideally start to get more input bottom up of like what are the product managers that are working in this day to day? What are they seeing? What are they hearing when they're talking to the customers? What makes sense from their perspective and kind of bubble it up? And those senior PMs that are kind of looking at it from a more wide perspective are able to find things amongst among all of those kind of pieces of information. Right. And help identify what the parties could be, but then present that as more of a a proposal, I would say, to right. leadership. It, it, if I can reframe it, it sounds like versus somebody showing up and saying, here's the objectives, meet them. It's that senior level becomes kind of an integration point between, you know, certainly filtering what is, of course, going to still be coming top down mm -hmm. business objectives, company direction, but also synthesizing the feedback from the teams that are working in the day to day to say, okay, these initiatives um, that are coming bottom up are can be made to align with these other mandates that are right. coming top down. Yeah. 
Exactly. You brought up business. The audience can't see that you put business in parentheses, by the way, but I saw it. And you're a business, I don't know if it's parentheses or legit, you went to business school. Is that how you found your way into product management was through business? Uh, no, actually, I have a bachelor's in computer science, so I started off as a developer. Developer? For, yeah. For Female developer. Hey, we, we exist. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I started off as a developer for a consulting company. And the reason I chose that company was because they sold me, you know, this is the whole, you know, selling in college, of, come to us because we offer all of these things. But they told me that, like, I could develop as well as be more be more of like a combination developer slash business analyst okay so i knew then i knew in college that like i love the logic of coding i love the problem solving that it allowed me to do but i also have a lot of opinions (laughs) (laughs) and um i wanted to be able to have a place that allowed me to voice those opinions and those opinions be heard so i chose to go down this route and over time i started to ask for more business analyst positions and some it started small um, and I still coded, but it was good to be able to decide what I was coding, you know, and decide. User stories were your gateway drug, basically. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love me a process flow. <laughs> right. um, so, yeah, so I kind of started there and soon enough kind of was fully at one point transitioned into like a business analyst role and then realized that that wasn't enough for me. Yeah. Okay, I want to I want to just stay here for a moment cuz you said so many juicy things. So first of all, you know, developers always get a bad reputation, especially sometimes we talk about, you know, product managers as being translators and having that requirement of needing to package up a piece of information and communicate it in a way that resonates for these highly structured logical people and then <laughs> uncouple all of that and make it flowy and present that to the design team and and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's not true that developers are only kind of wired one way. But I'm curious, knowing as much as you did about yourself and and what you needed, was it challenging as a developer to work with other developers who may not have been as, you know, call it extroverted, call it dual minded, as Mm -hmm. you describe? Uh, Then as a as a developer, I wouldn't say the issues were about like if they were very logical or not, it's usually I think about the personalities, like what what information does someone need to hear in order for them to understand what you're getting at? And I think that's the same issue, or not even, I wouldn't even call it issue. That's the same thing you have to deal with as a PM, or I feel like really in any role is really understanding your audience and I was going to say cater to them, but it's not necessarily cater to them, but like present the information in a way that they understand. Right. So when I was working with my peers, as a developer, as a coding, um, I think it was straightforward because it, we just really got down to the brass tacks about what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. And then now as a PM, I think it's it's valuable to kind of come from that world because I also know what they're looking for. You know, that you had mentioned that designers are looking for maybe X and, you know, maybe our nice stakeholders are looking for Y. And all of that's still valuable to give to a developer so they understand the full context. But at the end of the day, it's like, I want to know how how it's supposed to work, right? I don't care as much about <laughs> these other things. It's good to know, but but this is kind of what they need to know or what they really care about most of all. So you said that you you knew going into this role that you wanted to have a more call it holistic uh, viewpoint or or the ability to contribute more. So you were becoming increasingly exposed to the the 
the business analyst side. Yeah. And then you said that wasn't enough. So it wasn't enough. Talk, yeah. talk to us about that. Like where, where was it coming up short for you? So I realized once I was like full in business analyst mode that what frustrated me most is that people are stupid. <laughs> okay. Customers. Yep, that our can clients, be true. Our clients as a consultant, like, so as a consultant, we had to go on site to different clients and sometimes engagements were, you know, three months, six months, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that one, some of these customers didn't know their customers. They wanted me to implement something that wouldn't work for their use case, like for their buyers at the end of the day. And no matter how much I proposed something, there was always a limit to what I could control. Right. And then after all of that was done, after after I made it perfect and pretty, mm-hmm. you know, I then had to hand it over and like walk away. Right. And that was that was a second like killer point for me of realizing I'm too much of a control freak that to hand over like this nicely built thing that I've done and researched and perfected and have gotten all the feedback for and can see people smiling when they use it. Now I have to completely walk away from it and hopefully that you don't mess it up. <laughs> you were getting like cease and desist emails from right. clients saying, Brittany refuses to give Please. us the deliverable that you we were contracted to give. I would log on and check the sites that I've worked on like for weeks afterwards and I have to weed myself off. Like you just have to let go, Brittany. It's no longer yours. <laughs> well, it, it actually sounds a little bit like the pain point was less about business analyst role and more about the, the difference of being a, in a consultant capacity, like somebody like myself versus working inside of the organization. And, and this is a theme that we've surfaced on the show because we speak to product managers who own products within the company. And then we speak to product managers who work consultatively. And I think that is definitely, I I can share from that experience that sometimes you become so vested, especially if you're working on something for six months, a year, we have clients where we've worked with, you know, two, three years, nurtured them through different phases of the life cycle. And then you're like, wait a minute, I'm not part of that. I mean, I'm part of it, but I'm not. So I can definitely appreciate that. Yeah. Do you want to touch? You want your fingerprints all over you, like this is mine. Partly, and you also you also kind of want to be like involved in all of the aspects of it. You know, like you said, you invest your time and your heart into this to like really understand the customer, really understand that pain point. And as a consultant, at least at the time, as a business analyst, you would get as parts. And some companies, you would only get like the stilled version of it, right? You would get what someone thought that the customer should have. And so you, you didn't get the full access that you potentially would want to, to see. And then at the end of the day, regardless of what you thought was right for their customer, like you had to do it for their customer, rather, you had to do what your customer wanted to, because that is your customer. And I was thinking at the end of the day, more about the end user of this product. Right. Um, so it was like, it was probably like um, a fundamental difference in the job that I was but I was, it was the fundamental difference in the job that I had versus the job that I wanted. So you eventually got to the job that you wanted. Yes. Which was product manager within an organization. Yes. What was the first role? I was actually a role at Redbox. And okay. I had no idea that product management was a thing at this point. You didn't. Even though started, you were like t- 
touching it from all these different sides. I had no idea like it was called a thing. (laughs) So did you apply for that role or or they were just like, you'll be a product manager and then you had to go home and Google what that was? Uh, So when I was looking, when I decided like, okay, I'm I'm done with consulting. I want to find something else. I started essentially searching for project manager roles because I thought that's what the next step was going to be. Okay, I'm going to own a little bit more. I get to decide these things. And I realized soon enough that wasn't it. But (laughs) as I started to look at project manager roles and things that were connected to that, I was really focused on the job description. And then I came across this one really cryptic, (laughs) it was extremely cryptic, job rec for Redbox. And the reason I said it was cryptic is because they wanted a product manager for um, like a confidential product. So they couldn't even tell you about what the product could be. Right. Um, But it was like, we want someone, you know, who wants to make decisions for it. And, you know, they use this terminology, be their own CEO, all of that stuff. And I was like, well, that's me. That's everything that I want. And that I'm not getting at my current role. And it wasn't until I interviewed and I was on site and got the job that I was like, okay, yeah, this is this is the combination of still being close to technology and still working with developers because I was still very much really focused on how the thing was being built. Yeah. Um, but also getting to do the stuff that I was really excited about with usability and talking about the markets and looking and talking to our customers directly and then working with design and then like connecting all of those three things to make sure that what we built was what we needed to build and people were going to love it and all of that stuff. Do you, uh, do you do any coding anymore or you had, you just had to let it go? Yes. I had to let it go. Unfortunately, I do kind of get the itch from time to time. (laughs) So I'll play around with some things from time to time, but no, I don't code anymore. Well, one of the things that I find uh, challenging and something you just said, uh, brought it up in my mind Part of why we typically end up in this role is because we are a little thirsty for touching everything. Mm-hmm. That's that's usually what brings people into the more generic center is I, I want to talk about design and, and be involved in design and I'm interested in code. But then the challenge is you have to kind of continually defer to the experts. So, you know, like for me, for example, if I'm working on a project and it's a rare occasion now where I'll actually get to participate on the user experience design. And and there are reasons. I mean, I'm, I'm not always the best suited to be doing that within the organization, but I think that's the challenge is like you're lured into the role because of the promise of getting to touch all of this stuff, but then it's actually like you don't get to touch it. We have a user experience <laughs> designer for that. Yeah. You can talk to them. If you really want to sketch something, you can go into a conference room and, and do a whiteboard, uh, but then that's it. <laughs> so you, uh, you miss coding. You yeah. don't get to touch it as much but you're happy yeah well it's funny that you say that because I kind of forced it <laughs> in my first uh, product position at Redbox I would I would like hack together images of what exactly I wanted and then give that to design and I'm like do this but make it pretty <laughs> <laughs> did they like getting that level of detail or they were like oh great thanks for telling us how to do our job yeah. again and it's like you know I mean put your expertise on it you know the expert you know well I think it was interesting it was I think I was blessed in the sense that I became really good friends with my designer she's actually one of my best friends so I think we had a good rapport so she understood what I was getting at and uh, she would make fun of me of like did I did you did I create that cop or did you create that cop and I was like oh I did and I just did this really quick and she's like oh that's great I mean go for it how integrated are the designers developers PMs 
here at, at Braintree? I think it's probably the best that I've worked at. Um, granted, I've only been a PM at two other companies, but here we have, I forget what we call it, a three in the box or a pod or whatever it is, but essentially it's, you know, it's we have a team surrounded, surrounding a product where it includes the PM, the UX designer, um, a front-end person, a development people manager, which we call engineering managers, and the tech lead. So we're all very I tidy. hope they don't call that three in a box. I know, it's like five, five, right? Okay. I was like numbering. Five three. in a pod. Yeah, so that's essentially, we're, we all work very closely together when we're planning, when we're executing. And it's good that we have them dedicated, those resources dedicated to the team so that we know we have them at any point during the project where we need a new UI new UI screen or we need to do usability or what have you. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about those organizations where it's like you talk to go back to road mapping for a moment. You have all of your initiatives kind of mapped out and it's like, oh, but great, development is backed up until, you know, June of 2018. So you might have to rethink it. Yeah. Do these pods disassemble and reassemble like are you constantly working with you know a different ux designer or or once a team or pod is sort of formulated that's kind of your your crew until something changes yeah i think it depends on the product there are some products that we have at braintree that are kind of like staples mm-hmm. right there's for instance there's a a disputes team like for the, forever until eternity we will have disputes right so we need a team that is focused on that and they have a pm you mentioned disputes before i just want to get yeah. clear on this you're saying that you that not you but but the brain tree thinks about disputes as a product yeah okay. exactly so they're 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 um if we think about the fact that like a buyer a card holder i mean there's no disputes i know there's probably yeah. only ever like two so when i mean disputes um i use probably use the word chargebacks interchangeably but it's when a buyer sees something on their credit card calls up their bank and was like you know i didn't purchase this um someone's still my credit card or they call up and say this was item wasn't as described and they want to charge the, the cost of that item back to the merchant Right. And so we probably have to process that same way that we process the initial transaction. And so there's a there's a lot that goes into that. The merchant has to be notified. They have to respond to it. They sometimes have to upload evidence to prove that they did what they said they wanted to do. And um, they have to do it in a bunch of different ways, potentially, if they have a market in if they have business in Europe versus if they have business in Australia, because right. um, those are all done a little bit differently. So while disputes may seem like very straightforward, we do have a team around it because we just have so many merchants. We have to handle the scale of it. We mm-hmm. also want to continually improve upon the product to make it as easy as we can as we want to make that product as easy as we can for our merchants as the market changes, as the banks change and offer more functionality. Um, And then we want to be innovative. Like, is there a different way that we can notify them? Can we pre-populate some information so that they don't have to? Can we fight it on their behalf, you know? Right. I feel like you would be willing to take on that mission. (laughs) Give me the number of this person. I'll march this over. I'll figure this out. Yeah, you don't deserve this charge. I got this. (laughs) Well, I I only derailed you because 
One of the things that I think is so interesting, especially for folks listening in who maybe haven't worked in larger organizations or, you know, this idea of what is a product can, on an obvious level, we think of, okay, it's physical product or or increasingly we understand it as software. So to begin to see the nuanced ways in which organizations kind of carve up their product offering Mm -hmm. can also be, I think, tremendously enlightening. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, I never thought about disputes, which in a way is almost like a workflow, Mm -hmm. to to think about owning a workflow as a product and bringing a product-centric viewpoint to it. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, um, at one point, um, I owned uh, the Salesforce team, and so we think of Salesforce as a tool, but we also think of it as a product because a lot of our operations teams use Salesforce, but they use it in different ways. So they all have, like you mentioned, a workflow that they use it for, whether it's the risk team who needs to create risk cases in some type of automated way, right. or whether it's accounts that needs to create um, and capture all of this like metadata information and be able to search upon it and report upon it on the different types of merchants we have and the number of merchants we have. There were tons of requests coming through and we needed someone to like manage that, right? We needed someone to prioritize and create a roadmap and then not only look at fixing the specifics of what people were asking for, but then also like taking a step back and looking at it like, do we need to move maybe this piece out and create its own little app for the queuing system for Mm -hmm. risk? Do we need to look at another tool to do this specific thing for support? Or do we need to, like, how are we thinking about our merchants overall if we know that seven teams go to Salesforce to find out all this information? Is there a better way for us to represent this? So were you in the capacity of that role essentially documenting and developing processes for how the different teams would leverage Salesforce? I think ideally that was was (laughs) it. That's why I'm projecting because I'm thinking that's my dream job. Strange as that sounds. You mean I get to document the process? Yeah. It's not that. (laughs) I think at the the beginning it was really understanding how these teams used it and seeing if there was ways to like optimize some of that stuff. And then it was looking future of like, what could we take this to? What could we really, if we're thinking about it as a product, like not just fixing bugs or like making this workflow a little bit easier in this way instead of, you know, an Excel form, we have a field, you know, things like that. What makes the most sense for the business, you know, overall? So fine. I guess that's an okay job too. (laughs) So I I took us far down a path, but I wanted to come back. So I was asking you about the team constructs and Um, I was asking you that on the heels of your earlier comment about how much of the UX you were owning versus not. But what I'm curious about is your perspective on how to bring a feature to life and what is the right level of collaboration. So some organizations, for example, use an an informal scrum ritual known as story time, right? Where you're gathering kind of, you know, ideally folks from the development team, folks from the UX design team, product managers, taking a user story, right? Uh, Simply acknowledging a customer goal and then letting the different perspectives bring the details of the implementation to life, usually through the form of acceptance criteria. Is that, how much of your process looks like that? How much of it is product managers really owning the the full vertical of a story and its implementation? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'd be interested to see how how that would work here if we could do that. Um, Just because we have so many operational stakeholders, I probably have a dozen, (laughs) dozen teams of stakeholders. But in any case here, 
Um, it really is more of the latter of like the PM really owning the whole story creation. Mm -hmm. And we are just gathering input through interviews, through like requirements gathering from all our stakeholders, synthesizing it down and really trying to make the best decision with all the additional inputs of like, you know, what are our competitors doing? Where is the market taking us? What are our customers asking for versus what do they really need? Right. <laughs> All of those things. So yeah. are you then more prone to, say, grabbing a UX designer from your team and going into a little huddle room or something and yeah. saying, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about this problem. How might you solve it? And, and kind of collecting their input in kernels. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I would grab one of our designers and essentially like write, whiteboard out the, the problem statement how I think it should be solved, mm -hmm. kind of get their input, and then pull in, potentially pull in our tech lead if we already have one assigned um, to kind of validate any of that and point out any like, you know, gotchas. Like if we go, you know, design, and I love design because they have, they really think about the customer first of like what is easier for the customer. Right. But sometimes what is always the best for the customer may be like ridiculously three times as hard for technology to implement. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So trying to, Come to that like that balance um, is where is why we try and put them all in the same room at the same time. It's uh, I, I like the the visual that you're creating. It means that all the stock photos everywhere, teams gathered <laughs> around putting sticky notes up. That's truly how product management works: sticky notes and sketches. <laughs> at least yes, I would say at the very least whiteboard. Whiteboards, M&Ms, and, <laughs> and LaCroix. <laughs> you, speaking of task forces, are involved in like a diversity task force here. Yes, yes. Yeah. In addition to my day job. <laughs> <laughs> I have this whole other... And that, now, was that, what was the impetus for that? Did somebody solicit you and say, hey, do you want to be part of this? Or did you, you know, force that in? How did that come to be? You know, it was... <laughs> it was one of these things where Braintree had released internally our diversity numbers uh, for the first time. So PayPal releases its diversity numbers widely and we publish those. Um, but Braintree also kind of got some information um, and you did a town hall about it. And that was the beginning. In addition to showing our diversity numbers, they also formally started like our diversity and inclusion initiative and made it one of our business priorities. So, so the numbers, I guess, weren't promising if, it, well, if, it, I, if they you know, indirectly informed. <laughs> Here's our numbers. And by the way, right. we have a new take action initiative. Right. That we want <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest, it's not like it wasn't it wasn't horrible, mm -hmm. but it's what you would expect from a technology company. Right. right. It's kind of what everyone is dealing with. And it's not like no one expected the numbers to be what they were considering we see who's walking around our office on a daily basis. Sure. But it was at that point, prior to that, we had business resource groups, um, which were, you know, some were big and active and some weren't. Mm -hmm. um, but the beginning of that was this diversity and inclusion uh, where we had three pillars, one focused on um, adding diversity and inclusion in our hiring, one focused on our internal uh, people or employees, uh, making them feel good here. And then one was working on community and outreach. And so at that point, um, I started to get involved in two of those pillars, the hiring and the outreach, and eventually took over to lead the outreach and then took over to lead a sub pillar of the hiring. 
Um, so yeah, so now once again, things weren't enough for you. So right. You <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of like, <laughs> I have, again, I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> so they kept seeing me raise my hand and being like, well, we need actionable things and we need that, you know, so right. is there anything there you that you're most proud of in regards to the work that you're doing there that you want to share with us or, or frame in the, the format of advice for other organizations who are certainly listening and going, yeah, we can probably do better. I mean, most people can do better right. at diversity. There's probably a lot of things that I can say, uh, but the two maybe that, that come to mind, one from the um, respect of like what made me, what makes me most happy or excited, or sorry, what has made me most excited or happy recently is being able to show the, show the impact that we had. So for one, seeing the change in already a year that has made to our company, seeing the amount of people that have come through. For instance, our, our new hire email that came out today um, had three three new hires starting today, and they're all women of color. Amazing. And it was just like, and they actually, and they were all on the product side. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the, when I say the product side, it's not just a product management team, but including all of our developers, designers. Um, You're like shedding a proud I know. Team. It's just like, like <laughs> Right? It's just like it's really awesome to see that the entire the entire list that day or today was of women of color, which is awesome. But in respects to what other companies could do or how would you want to start it, um, it <laughs> I laugh because it was really it really started I think of just being like completely honest with like my manager and uh, my CTO at the time. I emailed him and was like. I have some feelings and I'm going to share them with you, essentially, if you want to hear them or not. <laughs> and um, kind of force the subject, essentially. And a lot of good things have come from that. And I will and I will credit Braintree a lot is that they've been open to having the conversation that a lot of people don't want to have. You know, they want to shy away from it. And let's not talk openly about, you know, actively going after you know, people of color, or women of color, or any of the other underrepresented groups in technology, or any of those types of things. But we've we've done a lot of we've pushed through a lot of great things from the top, like uh, having a gender neutral bathroom, uh, having gender identity training here. Oh, and these um, are, these are great initiatives. Yeah, great, really great things. Come work at Braintree. <laughs> They're not just an easy to use product. Right, exactly. We've, it, I really, I really feel the heart and the importance from our leadership about the things that we're doing outside of our product things, but about the people themselves. Right. Now, um, when you sent that, I'm giving you my thoughts, whether or not you're ready for the email, had you already perceived that there was somewhere within the organization uh, a receptivity to it, or that was just straight up you being like, I'm going to say stuff. I don't care who likes it or doesn't like it. Mm -hmm. So I think I felt... I felt comfortable sending our general manager that email. Um, I felt comfortable sending that general manager's email because I had had already talked to him and he knew me personally based on the work that I was working on within within Braintree. So it's kind of my day to day job. Right. I knew he was receptive to it just based on the way that he approached product management and the product management team of soliciting feedback and trying to iterate on things. If if this new process didn't work, like let's try and figure out a new way to go about it. Right. So I felt, although I didn't have very specific like evidence um, of having talked to him about some of these things before, mm -hmm. just based on his other, my other interactions with him, I was like, I'm going, I'm going for it. And I may have been too candid to go for it. Yeah. Um, but 
you know. You went for I it. went for You're, it. You did say you were opinionated. I have so an opinion. Full disclosure. So, yeah. And so I essentially just sent him an email saying like, hey, I would love to talk to you about so-and-so. And he was like, yeah, let's find some time and let's talk about it. And I did. And then I used a follow-up um, open, open office hours that he had to like re-talk about it again. <laughs> yeah. Great. And then things just, you know, continue to to push from there. So the, the reason that I'm asking the question, because I think as it relates to folks who might be listening in and thinking, what can I do to affect change? You know, one is you can kind of take a, a page from your playbook and it's just like, start the conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think there is this, this other element of why should it be uh, upon me to do right. so? Right. Oh, absolutely. And so my question to you w- would be, what could allies do what could other people do right if if it shouldn't be upon somebody who is in a minority to kind of shine a light on hey we have a diversity problem how can people who may be coming from a more privileged position um, also help to stand up these initiatives or drive change within an organization it's a good question because i know it's been talked about a lot here i think my advice is this that i think my advice would be it doesn't hurt to do the same thing, to just start the conversation. Because at the core of it, the conversation needs to be had, needs to be had in a public forum, right? Because there's a lot of going to be a lot of opinions coming out, a lot of feelings that it's going to incite, and that should happen. Um, that's the only way people are going to grow, right? And allies, they have that, they have this inherent privilege that they know that they have, that they can use in these powerful ways. And sometimes just knowing that to be able to push the conversation a little bit farther than maybe someone of an underrepresented group can do will help alleviate the burden um, and get a little bit farther to start with. Right. I'm not sure if that was all clear. No, I, I think so. I mean, I think what I'm hearing you say is, yeah, if, if you're passionate about it, even if it's not a problem that directly affects you, in fact, all the more reason if you're passionate about it and it doesn't directly affect you, then, then step up and, and help out because I think it is problematic to have to say well if you think it's a problem Brittany then you send an email and in your case you're like yes I will send that email but I don't think um I don't think that kind of confidence I don't think everybody feels that level of permission or safety to be able to to come right out and ask though I think it's awesome that you did that yeah and I absolutely if someone if someone would have told me that like oh if you feel this way then you should say something um I probably wouldn't have done it quite frankly because again it's as being a woman of color, I don't want that. I think we, we're always kind of battling this line of, I, wish, I wouldn't even say even as a woman of color, I think just people in the underrepresented group in general of trying to be like known for the work that you're doing uh, versus known as like, I'm the, you know, I'm gonna say the loud mouth, you know, like female or the loud mouth person of color or intersectionality of that. But yeah. then that then becomes my brand, you know? Right. Yeah. So so as I think at the end of the day, it's like the conversation needs to be started one way or another. And whether it's whether it's asking a question during a, a, pub, a public town hall um, to force the conversation, whether someone has a little bit of privilege that's in a leadership group and can bring it up at one of their monthly meetings with the rest of the leadership. Whatever they do in those. Exactly. Those offsites. That sounds <laughs> fabulous, but who knows? Or even if it's just like making a continued effort with your boss to say like, this really concerns me. I'm really, you know, frustrated about I'm seeing my peers or seeing what's happening in the news and I'm concerned. And I just, I want to know what my company is doing about this. Like, what are we going to do for 
the people that this affects, even if you don't happen to be one of them. But it's something that like you think about on a daily basis. Yeah, I love that. I think there's a, a another option which we've surfaced here today, which is people can just email you directly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you no, can I, take I, your, your evangelism I, outside of Braintree on right. behalf of other organizations. I, I mean, I have a Twitter account, but I don't use it. But I will feel free to, to ping me, and I will tweet your boss. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a whole new product. It could be a whole thing. Tweet but... my boss. All right. <laughs> Folks, you heard it here first in case anyone's going to try to, just kidding. Ideas are multiplier of execution. You got to do it well. Let's, uh, we do a segment here on the show called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. What advice uh, do you, Brittany, have for, and I'll frame it specific to, to, to your circumstance. What advice do you have to a developer who's listening in, who has themselves always felt a call to own a little bit more than just the, the programming piece, mm-hmm. how can they break into product, especially if they didn't get recruited by a company that kind of made that opportunity available? My first and biggest suggestion is just ask, like ask for opportunities. So one of the developers on my team, I meet with him monthly to just talk about the PM stuff that I'm doing. It gives some better context from like a, a developer perspective of like why I'm pushing for a date or why I changed the requirements on this thing. But if you as a developer are thinking this might be one of the things that you're interested in, like talk to a product manager. Maybe or like once a month, take them to lunch for a span of six months to see what their day is like and understanding how things change for them over that time period. And then tell your boss that like, hey, I would love to maybe sit in on some sales calls if there's an opportunity or shadow a PM for like, you know, a day or so if that's an opportunity. But I think it's I think it's also about just getting like exposure, you know, right. um, and really seeing what the job is. And is this really interesting? Is this really what I want to do? And then if like you can validate that, then take it to the next step. Like ask for an associate role or ask for a little project to manage, a little feature to manage. Because I think as a developer, you're in a perfect position to to see all of the stuff coming in and talk to your product person and say, is there something small that like I could dig a little bit deeper into and understand more of the use case for? And I'm sure they would love the help. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, got it, got it. What about uh, hard lessons learned? I mean, was there ever a moment either in your own career um, or watching kind of other uh, more junior product managers working their way up, if you will, I'm putting that in parentheses, listeners, uh, where you think, oh, this is a pitfall. This is a place where people mess up because it's easy to forget or it's easy to fall into this trap. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that even happens to myself from time to time, even though I try to guard against it, is when you're working on a very big thing, or even if you're very new to something and it takes, let's say, even two months to to develop and push out there, continuously reminding your stakeholders like what it is that's happening, like what it is that you're building. Because I think at the initial kickoff, everyone's all excited, like, yeah, this is great. This is amazing. And this is going to be perfect, the perfect solve for the thing that we're trying to fix. And then two months later, outside of maybe status updates of saying, yeah, we're on track, one, they'll forget <laughs> all the details about it. And two, things could have changed in those two months. It could have been a slightly different pain point now, or it maybe it like pivoted slightly, but you weren't aware of it um, because you weren't necessarily reinforcing exactly what was you were building over and over and over again. So I've seen that issue here where we've built something or 
where we built something, released it, you know, let's say six months later. And now stakeholders are like, what? This is not what I thought it was. Right. And you're like, but I got your buy-in. Like I did what I was supposed to do. I got your buy-in. I updated you on the progress of things. You got to test it. And why are you so confused now? Right. And sometimes I don't think we, there's like a specific solve for it, but I think it's maybe more about, like I mentioned before, of just periodically starting from scratch again with them, like reminding them the full extent of things and like making them turn off their phones and their computers to focus on it. Right. Right. The, the distracted, distracted executive yes. piece. I'm pulling you into this room and yes. reminding you we're building this. In this way, like in this specific way. And this is how people are going to use it. Because I think everyone can remember the use case of why we're building it, but yeah. not always the implementation details. And that seems to trip people up six months, eight months, 12 months later. Good advice. What, uh, what do you love about this? You found your home in product management. It sounds like you're finally getting enough. <laughs> what is it that you love so much about this job? I love I love solving problems. At the end of the day, like the core of me will probably always be like that engineer who wants to solve a problem. And I love that I can do it in not only in a very logical way, but like in a creative way. And I love, I think the, what, what keeps me coming back is seeing someone use it. Like once you spend all of this time of planning and, you know, comparing, contrasting features and prioritizing and working with stakeholders and all of that, and you can see someone intuitively use the thing that you've built, like there's nothing like that. There's like nothing better. What about, uh, do you have any recommended resources um, for folks listening in that you think are just like, if you haven't read this book, read this book. If you don't know this podcast, listen to this podcast. I, I wish I did. <laughs> um, I think the only the only book that comes to mind that I I personally received um, at one of like PayPal's leadership summits was a book called "What Got You Here Won't Get You There." Okay. Um, I wish I could tell you the author of it. I but, can backfill that for right. you. <laughs> I think that's a great book because I think the title says it. It says it all, right? It's all of the things that got you to that new promotion, to that that new job, is like to get you to that point in time. And there are additional skills that you just need to be aware of to get you, if you want to move to the next, not everyone wants to like continually move up this corporate ladder, but if that is one of your goals, like to, to think about it and to use, you know, the next time, the next X amount of months or years to really make sure you have an opportunity to do those things that will get you to, that, to where you want to be at the end of the day. Some people just want to get off the corporate ladder. Just yeah, Some absolutely. people aren't looking to get up. They're looking to leap to, off. To leave. To yeah. leave. And those take a whole other set of skills. Like you want to open your own business or you, you know, just want to call it a day. Like, yeah. <laughs> Either way, what got you here won't get you there. Right. And I think it's it's equally true for, for product as well, especially yeah. as your product moves through the life cycle what worked at at, uh, at early stage right. won't work at maturity different right. different Absolutely. For sure. what about a, a personal sort of mantra or philosophy that you use to to guide yourself in the world to guide yourself here at work something you want to share with us yeah um essentially what i tell myself and this is actually like the screensaver on my computer is remember why you do it and i because i think we can at times get so bogged get so bogged down on the day-to-day you know, someone's screaming about this and, you know, development's off schedule and whatever it is. Um, and I use this both for like the diversity stuff that I work on, which can be emotionally taxing and 
a lot of tape to get like the types of things that you want implemented. Um, but at the end of the day, it's when I'm able to see the fact that we were able to to donate money to like this racial literacy group for these teenagers who who are creating a textbook on how to talk about this for high schools. And I'm able to see in my in my work, um, I'm able to see in the product that I'm building and their usability test that customers are like, oh yeah, this is super simple. And they got it in less steps and with less direction than I expected. Like, that's why we do it, right? <laughs> that's why we put all this effort in and why we stress about it internally and why we are like fighting to get the right thing done is because at the end of the day, it just puts a smile on your face. Remember why you do it. Uh, Brittany Kenty, thank you so much for being a part thank of you. our project. It was great talking with you. Yeah, same here. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all new episode.